Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for bringing us together to study your word today. I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that Holy Spirit, you would be the one to speak and teach and that you would lead us into all truth. Let it truly be for the glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Welcome to our study in John. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised a coming Messiah. That Hebrew word for Messiah means anointed one. And when translated from the Hebrew into Greek, it becomes Christos, which is, of course, Christ in English. So it's important that you understand that when we see the name Jesus Christ in Scripture, Christ is not Jesus' second name. Rather, it's a clear declaration that he is the anointed one of God, the one whom God promised to send. He is the Messiah. Now, the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, and Gospel really means good news. And so these four books are the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as revealed through four different people who place different emphasis on his life, depending on on who they were writing to. For example, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector who became a disciple of Christ's, and his account about Jesus was primarily meant for his fellow Jews so that they could understand that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. It is believed that this was John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, who accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journeys. His gospel account was made up of things that had been told him by other people, and it was written down primarily with a Gentile or a non-Jewish audience in mind. Luke was himself a Gentile who had not been one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he was thought to be a doctor who ministered alongside of Paul. He researched the life of Christ by interviewing many eyewitnesses before writing his account largely to a Greek audience. And interestingly, at times, Luke is the one who seems to include medical facts in his text that aren't mentioned in the other accounts. So these first three Gospels then are known as the Synoptic Gospels because they give us a synopsis or a summary of Christ's life. The book of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, is slightly different though. Since early church times, it was widely accepted that God had used the disciple called John to write this account. And the writer never says who he is, but merely that he was an eyewitness to everything that happened. And also, he only ever refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But if you read the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that the disciple 
disciple John was really one of Christ's key followers, and yet in this fourth gospel, John is entirely missing. He's not mentioned at all, and it is that very fact that makes people think that the disciple whom Jesus loved was in fact John himself. This gospel is slightly different to the others. It was written sometime after the first three, and the book of John is not merely a synopsis of Christ's life, because it's much more theological in nature. It's written to both Jews and Gentiles, and so the writer carefully shows not only how Jesus fulfilled all the promises of the Jewish Messiah in the Old Testament, but in addition to that, because because he's also writing to Gentiles or non-Jews, John was often used by God to explain the Jewish customs in a way that the other writers did not. And he does so to help us understand the significance of what Christ did. So you can see this is going to be a very useful book for us to study because John is going to explain a lot of things that the other accounts do not. But before we begin, what do we know about the writer? Well, John and his brother James were fishermen who were friends of uh, Peter and his brother Andrew. In fact, they were business partners with them, and all four of them became followers of Christ. John and his brother James were sons of a man by the name of Zebedee, but it's funny, Mark tells us that Jesus called them sons of thunder, and the reason it is thought that he did that is because they had very explosive personalities. They were very short-tempered. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, he doesn't come across in that way at all. And I think that that's really testimony to the power of Christ and how he transforms lives. You see, the disciples didn't start out the way they ended up. Their relationship with the Lord changed them over time. And that's very good news for you and I also. Now, these two brothers, along with their friend Peter, became Jesus's closest friends. Although there were 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses to some of the things that the other disciples were not. And yet, even these three did not always understand Christ's plan. They had their flaws, but Jesus still transformed formed them and ultimately he did great things through them and Christ can transform you and me as well. He's also willing to empower us to do great things for his kingdom. John's brother James was one of the first to be killed for his belief in Christ, but by contrast, John was one of the last disciples to die. But that wasn't for the lack of people trying to kill him over the years. In fact, the early church records that John was actually boiled in oil at one point, and yet even that did not kill him. Because the truth be told, we're here until our mission is done 
and God calls us home. So John ended up dying at an old age of natural causes, and it is believed that he wrote this account of Christ's life while ministering in the city of Ephesus. He also wrote several letters to the New Testament church, which are now the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament, and God also used him to write down the book of Revelation, which was written right at the very end of his life while he was imprisoned in a Roman jail on the island of Patmos. Now, as we look at the opening verses of John in chapter 1, I want you to notice something. There is a clear similarity between the way this book starts and the way that Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, begins. So in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5, we are told, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said let there be light and there was light God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day so immediately we see here that God is creator of all things he created the heavens and the earth there was darkness on the face of the world but God spoke his word into that darkness and light appeared Life was made possible because of that light. Now, let's look at the opening verses of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the first thing you notice is that just as it was in Genesis, the creator is revealed. The word is spoken into the darkness and there is light which makes life possible as well. But notice in verse 2 through 4 that the word is referred to as he. Jesus is the word incarnate. He is a person. He's not an illusion or a spirit or a thought. But according to these verses, he is a real person. He is God in the flesh. Because not only is this word a person, but John also tells us in verse 1 that the word was God himself. Now, I know that there are people who will tell you that Jesus is not God, or they'll say that he never claimed to be God. But I want to tell you, in this study, we're going to see that the scriptures clearly reveal otherwise. Now, remember I said that John had written this book to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Well, perhaps because of that, John speaks of the word here, and he uses a term that would have been a well-known Greek term at the time, and it is ha-logos. Ha-logos reveals that Jesus is not a word, but he is the word the Logos, and this was for a reason. 
Greek philosophers at that time used the term logos to describe God's plan that governed and organized the universe. And so John begins using a familiar term that people would know and understand at that time. And he uses it to reveal that God's plan for mankind, God's plan for the universe is embodied in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the one who governs and controls the universe, not only as its creator, but also as its sustainer. In Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17, Paul states something very similar when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that he created everything in heaven and on earth, all that is visible and invisible. And also he says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Christ is not only the creator, he is the sustainer of the complex universe and all that is in it. Jesus Christ is the Logos. Not only that, but John goes on to reveal him to be the light in whom there is life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. The themes of light and darkness are going to run throughout the Gospel of John. And later on, we even see Jesus declare himself to be the light of the world. And that's really fitting, because life is only possible when there is light. Because in some way, everything depends on light in order to grow. Verse 5 states that the light of Christ, this is important, it shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see that the word therefore shines in the text is in the present tense. Jesus continues to be the light in this dark world. He still shines. Nothing has been able to overcome him. Going on in verse 6, the disciple John goes on to mention a different John. This is a reference here, not to John the disciple, but rather to a different man, John the Baptist. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Clearly, John the Baptist was sent by God as a witness concerning the coming Messiah. He came to testify to the fact that Jesus was the one for whom God's people had long been waiting. John the Baptist himself was not the light, but his ministry pointed to Christ, the true light of the world, who was sent to give light to everyone, to Jews and to non-Jews alike. As creator, he came to his creation, but look at what we're told in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
Jesus, creator of the universe, came to earth, but people didn't recognize him. More than that, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and those who had the law and the prophets, those who were expecting the Messiah, but even they did not receive him. The Jewish religious leaders had made it their life's work to study the scriptures and everything foretold by Moses. And yet, though they knew the law, they did not know God. They knew the prophecies, but they didn't recognize when those prophecies were fulfilled in their own presence. You see, the light shone in the darkness, but many were blind to it then. And honestly, it's no different today. The light of Christ still shines and yet many still reject him. They prefer to hold on to what they're familiar with, no matter how desperate or uncomfortable that life might be. Verse 12 is very important. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So who are the children of God? They are those who are born spiritually from above. The scripture is very clear. The only way to become a child of God is to receive Christ, to entrust yourself to him and to believe in his name. Now that Greek word for belief there is pistuo, and it means far more than just head knowledge. Biblical belief means that not only do we know of Christ, but that we entrust ourselves to him and everything he stands for. It means that we put our confidence in Christ and Christ alone. And as we do that, we're born from above and we become part of God's family. New life and a real relationship with God as our father is only possible for those who receive Jesus as their savior and Lord. Christianity is very different to the religions of the world. Religion is mankind trying to work their way to God. But Christianity is really about God working his way to us. In other belief systems, God is not personal, but rather he's distant and he's disinterested. Religion says you have to try and earn God's approval through your works. You have to earn God's favor by what you do, and there's never any real guarantee of success. There's no way of knowing if your good works will ever be enough. When your works are measured on the scale, will they weigh enough to open the door into paradise or not? There is no certainty. But Christianity is not like dead religion. The Bible teaches we are not saved by what we do, but rather we're saved by what Christ has done on the cross. He paid our debt with his own blood, and as we trust him, he not only reconciles us to God the Father, he transforms us to live a new life in his power as part of his family. So look at what we're told then in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The word was not only with God, 
the word was God. And yet he laid aside all of his glory and came to us. He made his dwelling place among us. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 puts it this way, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." If it were up to us, we would always remain separated from our Father in heaven. We could never match up to the holiness that God requires. But in Christ Jesus, God became like us in order to save us from the penalty of our sin. He took our sin and our shame on himself on the cross. And the punishment meant for you and me was borne by Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you and I would not have to be. He died in our place and his blood was shed on our behalf and he has purchased us for God, reconciling us to the Father. It is all undeserved and it is all by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The disciple John goes on to tell us more about John the Baptist, saying in verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, interestingly, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin, and he was born six months before Jesus was. And yet, here he says that Jesus is greater than he was because Jesus was before him. Jesus, as both creator and sustainer of life itself, has always existed, and he surpassed John in every way. Verse 16 says, Out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We need to understand that when God does not give us what we deserve, that's mercy. But when he gives us a blessing that we do not deserve, that is grace. Now, out of God's fullness, we've received grace upon grace, one blessing after another. God reminds us here that God's law had been given with Moses as a go-between. And the Jews who heard this believed that there really was no one greater than Moses. But while God had used Moses to bring his law, his truth to the people, the main lesson taught by the law of Moses was our desperate need for a saviour. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments, for example. Are there any of us who have never broken even one of them? No, of course not. Romans 3.23 even confirms that, saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10 tells us that whoever 
keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Let me say that again. James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So then why was the law given to Moses in the first place if God knew it was something we could never keep? Galatians 3.24 tells us the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith in him. You see, God wanted to show us how we needed to live. But when we realize how short we fall of his standard, we understand our desperate need for a savior, one who will pay our debt to God. John in his gospel tells us that Jesus can do what the law could not. And we'll cover this in more detail over our next lessons. Jesus is the only one who has lived a sinless life, yet he died as a substitute for you and for me. Through his sacrificial death on the cross, he not only took care of our debt to God as lawbreakers, he enabled those who repent and who ask for forgiveness to become the children of God. In Christ, all of the truth of God's law was met with all of God's grace. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. According to verse 18 there, we cannot know God except through Christ. If you want to see the glory of the Father, look at Jesus. If you want to know God's grace, his love and his truth, look into the face of Christ. As we go on to study the book of John, we're going to see the many remarkable claims of Jesus. For example, in John 14 verse 6, he will say, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 8 verse 12, he will tell us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. According to Christ, not only is he the light of the world, but he's also the only way to God the Father. Truth and life are in him alone. And as we study, we will see Jesus' claim to be God himself. Let me encourage you to persevere in the study of God's word, because in the end, what other people say about Jesus really isn't as important as what Jesus says about himself. In this study, in John, it's going to give us an amazing insight, not only to who Jesus claimed to be, but also who he showed himself to be. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for all that you've said to us in these opening verses of the Gospel of John. And we pray that you'd continue to speak to us to the praise and glory of Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. 
Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.